you again. I do hope you brought your appetite. Welcome back again to the Gallery of Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. This past weekend, I acquired a lot from an abandoned storage auction, which, which turned out to be several boxes filled with mid-20th century home and gardening magazines, and an index of photographic recipe cards from the 1960s. Not at all the artifacts I was hoping for, as I'm sure you can well imagine. However, with the Thanksgiving holiday rapidly approaching, rather than cut my losses completely, I decided to create a most singular exhibit out of it. The staff is in the kitchen, working on it now. Let's go tour this week's exhibit while we wait for dinner to be served. This one comes from author Donald J. Bingle, who has six books and more than 50 shorter works in the horror, thriller, science fiction, fantasy, steampunk, mystery, romance, comedy, and memoir genres. The Love-Hate Case Files, his mystery, horror, romance, urban fantasy novel, co-written with Gene Rabe, won three silver falchions. Visit him on the web at donaldjbingle.com. It'll be read for us this evening by Matt Dovey, who is very tall, very British, and probably drinking a cup of tea right now. Mr. Dovey has short science fiction and fantasy stories all over the place. Find out more at mattdovey.com or follow him on Twitter at Matt Dovey Writer. Gentlemanly Horrors of Mine Alone A Tale of Love, Gold and Monsters Written by Donald J. Bingle and narrated by Matt Dovey Well played, muttered Rogers, the major-domo of the Wanderers Club, amidst the gentlemanly utterances of Good show! Hear, hear! And even huzzah! As Sir Algernon Hogshead finished his tale with a dramatic flourish. Though not so socially gregarious as to partake in the verbal bonhomie, I thumped my ivory serpent's head cane a few times myself, in collegial support of my frenetic friend, as his bizarre but well-told tale had come to its breathtaking and remarkable conclusion. Truth told, the hubbub of excited utterances and exclamations regarding Sir Hogshead's fanciful quest were well said, but, greater truth yet, I had become more and more pensive and apprehensive as the tale progressed. I knew what was coming next, not within the story, but after. The roiling cloud of despair and embarrassment to come darkened my already disquieted disposition. I looked down at the ancient oriental carpet beneath my wing-backed leather chair in an attempt to distract myself from the obligation soon to come to me, focusing on the rug's pattern to find the intentional flaw that would identify the village which had woven it. Finding flaws aplenty in myself, but none discernible in the carpet, I abandoned the trivial quest 
and gave the brandy in my heavy crystal snifter a languid swirl to release more of its richly intoxicating scent. As an expectant silence seeped in to replace the boisterous utterances of only a few moments before, I looked up to meet the gazes of my fellow club members as they turned toward me. Though my chair was the closest of any to the fireplace and its rolling waves of rough, dry heat, I suppressed a shudder. Someone near the snooker table cleared his throat with a rumbling cough, and Throckmorton, to my right, tapped his pipe sharply to clean out the ashes before refilling. I screwed up my courage to at least speak, as I barely had enough courage to do so was part of my despair and my shame. Gentlemen, I said, holding my voice steady and doing my best to hold my drink steadier yet so as not to betray my trepidation. Though not of the experienced years of some of you, and only recently returned from my sojourn abroad in the Americas, I know the traditions of the Wanderers Club, as did my father and his father before me. Wherever gentlemen gather to smoke and relax and drink and socialise, whether in a men's society or an adventurer's guild or the parlour of the main keep of a country castle after a hearty meal of fresh cold venison, the routine is familiar. Tales are told one by one to the gathered collegium. Tales of exploration and daring do, tales of adventure and heroic quest, tales of far-off places and strange, sometimes very strange, ways. I held the snifter to my nose, breathing in the pungent aroma to steal my nerves. The tales are told to amaze and delight, to educate and inspire, to boast of prowess in the understated way a man may do among his fellows without shame, and to establish one's place of belonging, even of honour, within the confines of gentlemanly society. I felt the snifter begin to quiver, and set it down upon the adjoining table, as quickly as I believed would look natural. My turn has come, and I have no excuse for not telling you my tale. Having recently returned from extensive travels in that wild continent across the Great Atlantic, I cannot say with veracity that I have no new adventure to impart. And though there are, in clubs such as ours, occasional whispers of exaggeration and embellishment by those whose natural skills of oratorical flourish have been augmented and encouraged by the strong spirits conjured by master craftsmen of distilled liquors, I cannot in honour tell you, my brethren, an untruth. I rubbed my hand across the faint stubble of my chin, releasing by such touch a waft of the sweet, musky scent of my men's cologne. I fixed my hand to my chin a moment to steady my hand's growing shake before lowering it to my side, shifting my jacket out of the way and hitching my thumb into the watch pocket of my vest, as they are prone to do in the western regions of America, where vests are often worn without a proper jacket. I am shamed to admit that mine is not a tale of daring do and wondrous things, but sadly a tale, as it were, of daring don't and unspeakable things. But it is my tale, and my shame, mine alone, and I hope that you will take what caution you can from it. I took a deep breath and began in earnest, my nerves steadying as the words poured forth and memories too long held in were set free. 
Like all great tales, mine involves a woman, a treasure, and great danger. As you know, my family's fortune is built upon railroading, and even a man of wealth and leisure must occasionally tend to matters mercantile. That my inspection of the factories and foundries of our America's division should necessitate travel to that rugged and bounteous land to see its great expanses and wondrous, unspoilt vistas was to me a fortuitous benefit of great interest. And so I took the train to Southampton and shipped out in as much luxury as ocean travel permits to sail to the Americas. I landed in New York and took care of needful business, both there and in the rail capitals of the eastern seaboard generally, before making way west to Chicago and on to St. Louis, Topeka and out Denver way. At each stop, I tended to business matters and introduced myself into the local social scene, as much as such rustic lands allow, enjoying the fine, warm days of summer after my cold spring voyage across the North Atlantic. It was autumn by the time I arrived in Denver, and though the high plains were windy and chill, there was no snow yet to damp the festivity of that mile-high city, though a heavy, white blanket lay over the mountains looming to the west and southwest. I leaned forward in the wing-backed chair to allow the radiant heat of the fire's glow to warm my sallow cheeks, which cooled with the memories of my visit to Denver and points west. Feckless and consumed by my own frivolous pursuits in the city, I delayed my needful visit to the foothills of the Great Rocky Mountains where I was tasked to assist with the engineering of a narrow gauge line to service the silver and gold mines that dot the hills of the region. Mines so numerous, the trees of the heavily forest hillsides have all been stripped bare to provide firewood, as well as timber supports for the working shafts and the mine train servicing the gaping moors in the earth. I should not have delayed my journey. There was no reason to do so, for once I headed into the mountains, I discovered that the mine town in which I had my engineering task was surprisingly large and well appointed, though a bit rugged and brash, as were its denizens. The engineering work itself was most interesting, occasioning a trestled loop of tracks winding about the outskirts of the mountain town so as to gain height within a confined area at an acceptable grade in order to make way farther west into the hills to the most active and profitable mine workings. The scenery, despite the devastation of the vegetation for as far as the eye could see, was still breathtaking. Stark and white, the air a striking blue, cut by vivid grey and white peaks with puffs of white where the fiercely cold wind swept up powdery snow crystals to form graceful drifts in the swales below. I closed my eyes and saw the scene in my mind's eye, and then my memory shifted to an even more beauteous view, my beloved Vivian. My eyes misted, and I paused as I fought to maintain control. Finally succeeding, I waved my free hand indifferently in front of my face, as if clearing a waft of errant smoke from the still roaring fire to my right. But enough travelogue. All was well as winter came strong and fast to our fine city. But all was better still when I first met my lady friend. Gay, witty and a sparkling conversationalist, my business had some undertakings with her husband's mining interests to the west. She so lit the room with her smile that kerosene lamps were scarce needed. She so entranced all about that conversation stopped, and it was as if the pianist in the corner played only for your own pleasure. She so delighted all 
that I'd never heard an unkind word about her. Not from servants, or rivals, or crooking wives, or even coarse men from the mines. Alas, she was married, else a thousand swains wooing would lie at her feet. I, of course, treated her with honour and respect, despite the desires of my heart. But still, we became friends and, as the winter deepened into frigid isolation, I gave thanks to the heavens that I could enjoy her company for a few hours almost every day, as her husband remained at the western mines almost a day's ride away, and she grew melancholy alone in her grand house all day. I paused, lost in a reverie of her look, her voice and her laughter, as we told tales of our journeys and our lives, until a voice from across the room broke my trance of misgiving. The treasure man, you said there was treasure! Yes, came another voice, this one close and gruffer, and danger too! I smiled as the impatience and priorities of my colleagues showed themselves. Ah yes, I replied, I did promise both, and, as is usually the case, they arrived together, nigh unto dawn one February morn. One of my friends, manservants, rousted me from my slumbers by loudly pounding on the door to my quarters in a fine hostelry. He held out a note on folded lavender stationery that smelled of gardenias in the spring. Please come quickly with my servant. I am in need of your assistance. The note was unsigned, no doubt to maintain propriety if it were to fall into unintended hands, but I was of no uncertainty whatsoever as to who sent it and what I must do. I dressed straight away and bundled up for a journey in the cold, bringing along a pack of supplies and my never-fired Colt Peacemaker revolver, which I had acquired in Topeka during a boring stopover in my earlier travels. So provisioned, I rushed as quickly as possible to offer whatever needful assistance I could to my dear friend. Another shiver came upon me, and I took a quick swallow of my brandy, more for warmth than taste, before continuing my tale. Every window of the grand home blazed with light as we approached, the manservant throwing open the door without knocking. As we entered the foyer, I heard a wail and a thump, and before I could scarce react, much less remove my bulky outer garment, my friend flew into my arms, burying her head in my shoulder, distraught beyond measure. Several pieces of paper were clutched in her hand, crumpled by her rigid grip. The manservant excused himself, and somehow we made it into the parlour, where a fire built so high as to threaten to soften the andirons blazed brightly. It took several minutes, but finally her sobbing spasms lessened sufficiently she could speak. Please, my lady, I said, tell me what malady has befallen you, and I will do whatever may be required to allay your distress. Her gaze darted up toward my own, then flitted to the pages she held, then to the windows, where the heat of the fireplace was doing battle with the frost caused by the frigid conditions a mere pain away. What dire communication have you received that frights you so? Her red-rimmed eyes filled with tears anew, and the hand holding the crumpled pages began to quiver without control. From whence comes this missive? I asked. From the west, from the mines, she whispered in reply. From your husband? She shook her head no, and once again gazed toward the frost, attempting to reassert itself upon the blackness of the window pane. As if in response, the glass rattled as a blast of cold assaulted it. She looked down toward the floor, as if ashamed by her next words. 
from the mine foreman. It appears my husband is lost. Why such words should embarrass her, I could not say. Rather than reply, I reached out and took the pages from her trembling grip. When she made no protest, I intruded upon her personal correspondence without apology and read the communication itself. I am stricken with grief to write with such dreadful tidings, my lady, but I know not what else to do. All is not well at the mine. Winter has set in with a fearful vengeance here at these higher altitudes. Snow after snow after snow has visited the camp, piling high above the rooftop of even the mill and forestalling work of any kind above the ground. Many of the workers abandoned the camp as the weather worsened, until there were too few of us left to efficiently work the mines, even if the last large group to depart had not broken into the storeroom and taken most of the remaining food supplies to provision their flights from this place. Perhaps they were the wise ones to leave when they did, but we all cursed them for leaving little behind. We cannot hunt. Each new snow is greater than the one before, and is broken only by bouts of the fiercest cold I have ever known. Finally, those of us left, your husband included, retreated into the mine for shelter and relative warmth, carrying what meagre provisions remained. That was a week ago. As the cold increased, we went further and further into the mine, but with poor ventilation and nothing to burn but the shoring timbers and rail planks, our lot was dark and miserable and we grew desperate and hungry. Your husband did his best to provide for both our physical well-being and our morale, taking the smallest portions of our meagre fare, venturing into the lower levels with canteens to fetch clear, clean water, and telling us tales of his sundry exploits as a miner and a businessman. Though his offerings provided little in the way of real sustenance, we were thankful for his efforts, until three days ago. He returned from his daily trek for water much later than usual, the stub of his torch barely flickering to light his way and the canteens empty of liquid. He arrived with great excitement, raving about how, as he had approached the area where he regularly retrieved water, he had come upon the tracks of a great beast. In hopes of locating a bear which had ventured for a refreshing drink just before entering into its hibernating slumber, he had tracked the creature. The lengthy trail led out of the mine workings into natural tunnels beneath the earth until it opened up into a large cavern. His story was strange. Surely there are bears in these mountains and they do, no doubt, hibernate to escape the frigid winter. But to find one so far and so deep from ground level was perplexing, yet he asserted it with great fervour. When. However, he began to describe the creature's lair as filled with gold, coins littered upon the floor, necklaces and gems scattered about and the like. We realised he had gone quite mad from the privations and cold he had endured. His words were fevered, and, we discovered, so was his brow. Doing our utmost to tamp down our incredulity, we attempted to humour him, to mollify him concerning his ravings over the treasure and the mythical beast which must have gathered it, but the effort was most difficult. After all, bears are not magpies, they do not collect shiny objects. Hordes are the province of dragons, which are merely imaginary constructs found in children's tales. Despite doing our best to keep our doubts and concerns to ourselves, he must have sensed our disbelief, for while we later slept, he crept out of our makeshift camp with the last of our torches. 
When we discovered he was gone, we called out to him, but heard no response except our own echoes. We dared not follow without adequate light, and so we sat and waited, straining for any sight or sound of his return. A day later, we heard a distant scream of terror, which was cut off abruptly, yet echoed on in the mine shafts and in our minds. After another day's wait, we began to make our way back to the surface in the dark, the men feeling it better to take our chances in the snow and cold than wait for death below the surface of God's earth. The way was slow and dark, but the main passage wide and straight. Eventually, we saw the lights glimmering through the cracks of the mine door. Once back at camp, we attempted to gather such supplies as remained by cutting through the roof to break into the mine office. Most of us are headed west, down slope a half day to a competitor's mine camp, in the hope of food and salvation. Jake, the bearer of this letter, has determined to take the longer trek east as he is betrothed to the daughter of the local stableman and insists upon returning to her. He has agreed to bring this letter to you. Despite its tidings, I beg you show him the same nurture your husband attempted to his last to provide to all of us. My lady had composed herself during my reading of the crumbled pages, but as my eyes flicked back up to her at the finish, she looked upon me with a gaze of desperation. I beg of you, she pleaded, you must find my husband, you must bring him back to me. Of course, I replied without hesitation, or, frankly, any coherent thought whatsoever. Some wags might say that I was reacting to her obvious distress, or that I sought the unbelievable treasure for myself, or that, lovesick as I have admitted myself to this assemblage to be for her, I knew that I could never have her love if I did not attempt to perform this quest, or, more calculating still, that I knew failure to find evidence of her husband's death would delay both my wooing of the fair lady and her receipt of her inheritance. But as members of the Wanderers Club, I do not doubt you know the truth of what I am about to say. No man can deny such a request, despite the risks or rationality involved, and yet continue to call himself a man. My mind engaged itself upon the task at hand and began to formulate plans. I will need provisions, she interrupted. My servants have been preparing in greatest haste since the letter first arrived. And I shall need to speak with Jake to find out more detail and, one praise, to convince him to accompany me to the mine and guide my endeavour. I consulted my old pocket watch. I assume he has eaten. Has he rested also? Her eyes fled back to the floor. She spoke in a whisper. He has not eaten. He is at rest, but not rested. I furrowed my brow in confusion for but a moment before her next words raced my logic to a sad conclusion. Jake was found by a trapper near the creek west of town, frozen to death. The undertaker found the letter in his clothing. No one's sure how long he's been dead or how long it took to get from the mine to the creek. This letter could be almost a fortnight old. The direness of the situation pressed upon my mind. Not just the risk of getting to the snowbound mining camp, or the dangers of a dark, lonely trek through a massive labyrinth of adits and shafts, but the remoteness of any discernible outcome at all, much less a favourable one. Most likely, I would risk greatly and expend much effort to find nothing. 
Nevertheless, I expressed my condolences for forwarding to Jake's betrothed and set fast upon my preparations. Others at the Wanderers Club have, in their time, told great tales of their journeys through the cold and ice and the dreary numbness of mind and body that comes from such travels. I shall not in any manner gainsay or belittle their achievements by dwelling on my own winter trek, except to say that I am not them. I had not their skill, nor their preparations, nor their physical and mental conditioning, nor their driving determination. And so, my three-day journey was for me a bitter torture, filled with icy stabs of pain, tempered by even more ominous, creeping numbness. Upon arrival at the camp, I took shelter in the mine office, entering through the hold roof. I first located a map of the mine, then made a fire of things less useful. I slept until I woke naturally from the cold invading as the fire dimmed. It mattered not whether I would begin my quest underground during night or day. All within would be black within five minutes of entering the mine. The central adit, though some may refer to mines as tunnels, they are technically adits, as a tunnel is open on both ends and an adit open on merely one, was broad and well constructed. So at first I proceeded with good speed, no longer encumbered by heavy drifts and howling winds. My provisions were calculated for my task. Of course, I carried food and water, but neither in overabundance. Water, I knew, I could find in the mine. Food was essential to maintain energy and body heat, but since I had no long-term concern for proper nutrition, adequate protein or taste satisfaction, I carried primarily fats and sweets fats for satiety and sugars for energy, most especially a large pot of sugar mixed with butter and ground coffee along with hard candies to suck on while I moved. Light was my most important supply. I carried both oil lanterns, I could burn the sugared butter in a pinch, and tar-soaked torches in as much quantity as I dared carry. In addition to providing heat, useful but not nearly as essential in the mine as it would be in the bitter cold of the high mountains in full winter, the light would allow me to track my progress via the mine map I carried and to search for tracks or other signs of passage that could lead me to the fictional lair accessed by way of the water source in the deep levels of the mine. It took less than a full day by my measure to find the camp where the miners had taken refuge from the frigid cold outside. I rested there, eating and consulting my map and the tracks leading away, deeper into the mine. Part of me hoped that my lady's husband would come strolling up, filled canteens in hand to greet me. Alas, such a fortunate and happy occurrence was not to be. I pressed on, slower now as I checked for tracks and consulted and amended the mine map as I progressed. I took every opportunity to go lower in the mine, my logic being that the water source was at a lower level and the shortest route to such water would have been the one chosen to replenish supplies. My methodical approach and a few inevitable blind alleys conspired to lead me to take almost 10 hours to find the underground lake in a flooded section of the mine. Again I rested without slumbering, replenished my own water, forced enough gag-inducing buttered sugar and caffeine down my gullet to energise myself, and studied the many tracks near the edge of the water and the approaches to it. Along with the tracks of many booted feet, including my own, there were some bare tracks, as in unshod feet, not the creature. Though clawed, the tracks lacked the rounded pads associated with bears and other furred animals, and were clearly too large to be any other form of animal known to habitat mines, 
though I confess to being no expert on badgers and wolverines and other creatures of the Americas. My progress slowed even more as I tracked the strange trail, especially once I was far from the water and the ground was more firm and any residual mud on the footprints I was following well worn off. My only advantage in my tracking efforts was that many passageways went for significant distance without intersecting with other passageways. With no opportunity for detours or changes in direction, I had only to analyse with vigour any junction area and, once I discerned the path, right, left or forward, I could move again with speed for a little while. Despite the incredulity of the letter's tale of the pathway to the Dragon's Horde, I took it as a good sign when the works passage I was following gave way to a natural seam in the rocks. After a few hours of uneven, rock-strewn meandering, and increasingly confining and jagged walls twisting and turning about until I lost all sense of direction, I cursed nature and her ways. Instead, I prayed for any respite from the confusing array of incipient cave-in materials, whether a wide spot on which to stretch out a moment, or a flat rock or space on which to sit. Finally, I found it. A flat ledge a bit less than a metre wide and almost two metres long, waist high along the right wall. I was tired beyond belief. I brushed off what little rocky debris littered the ledge and lay down upon it, curving my body to match the contours of the ledge. I took out my foodstuffs to rejuvenate myself before I rested, but was apparently too tired to eat. In retrospect, falling into a catatonic slumber and both arms hooking a pot of buttered sugar and coffee was not my finest moment. The next moment, I remember, was even worse. I woke with a throbbing headache, which was magnified by the ear-splitting bellow of a huge, hideous beast. No doubt, the headache was also accentuated by the fact that I was upside down, being carried in a swinging, haphazard way over the shoulder of such hideous beast, with my face bouncing on the hairy, fetid flesh of its naked buttocks. I dare say I would have screamed like a little Mary, joining in the cacophony of its own bestial yells, had it not been that even in my adult state I instinctively realised that nothing good was going to come of opening my mouth, or inhaling heartily so as to yell in this unhappy position. Neither my condition nor my perspective provided a good vantage for a full description of the beast. All I could see through my slitted eyelids as I swung haphazardly to and fro was pale, scabby, flea-ridden, hairy skin and dried excrement. But from further examination during my confines in that dim-lit lair of despair, I can report to you assembled gentlemen that the creature was humanoid, almost three metres high, with pale, blotchy skin, long arms, long legs and white and grey matted hair. The eyes were heavily recessed, small and black, the ears overly long and sharp-pointed like a canine's, but the nose flat and squat and snot-encrusted. The claws were more like long, sharpened nails, neither curved nor apparently retractable. They were grey-black in colour and broken and jagged. The stench of the creature was foul and most overpowering. I dare say I maintained consciousness partly because of its pungent irritation. The cavern itself stank of mildew, a small, yellow fire at the far end of this immense cavern threw off black, sooty smoke. I believe such is an adequate description of my environs, except for three things. First, and least, was the immense hoard of treasure. 
I stopped my tail for a solid measure and looked about at the enthralled gaggle of club members. The single word treasure had immediately stilled and intensified the level of interest of the entire crowd. There was not a single incident of throat clearing or shifting about or sipping or even swirling a drink until after I spoke again. The rough cavern walls were, themselves, streaked with veins of gold, at least in the lower reaches where the soot of the constant fire had not blackened any variation away. The uneven floor was strewn with coinage, principally golden. Silver teapots, broken china, jumbled flatware, fancy candelabra, ornate mirrors and flashy jewellery of all sorts and fashions were lying about in a disorganised profusion. Given the remoteness of the location, I could only presume that this represented untold years worth of booty from capturing and looting passing settlers, miners, trappers, traders and supply convoys travelling over the nearby mountain passes. I even saw a few swords and pieces of military wear which appeared to be quite old. Again, I looked at the assemblage, many now visibly leaning forward in their wanton greed to catch every syllable. One of the younger, more aggressive adventurers opened his mouth as if to speak, but I waved him off. No, I won't tell you where the treasure hoard is located. You may have made note that I have avoided names of persons or places, other than those of great cities and first names most mundane, altogether. Though at times awkward to the telling of my tale, I wish to divulge nothing of substance. I shall give you no hint of the treasure's location, not even under the considerable pressure of my peers and the etiquette of our honoured traditions. And no, it is not because I covet the treasure for myself. First of all, you would not believe the location if I told you that a treasure so large and old could be so close and so accessible to travelled ways. Second, in the event you did believe me, I will not tell you because such telling might impact on my beloved lady friend, and I will not distress her any more than I already have. But third, and most important of all, I will not because if I do so, you will go there and see horrors unimaginable. Worse yet, you will go there and wish you had died. I cannot, in good conscience, do that to a fellow human being, much less a gentleman. Whether to cover his gaff or his greed, the middle-aged whippersnapper that had opened his mouth before my cautionary tirade spoke up. You said beyond the first there were two more features of the cavern you have not yet described. His prompt irked me, both in form and in substance. This was the hardest part of the tale to tell, and although I had promised the group my confession, as it were, I realised I was stalling somewhat in getting to it. However, there is no time like the present, especially when you are ashamed of your past and have no future to look forward to. The second feature to which I referred was a deep pit, more than five metres from top to bottom, in which I was soon to become imprisoned. More of that anon. But the third feature was a more gruesome aspect of the cavern and the hoard. Along with the veins of gold and sooty residue, amidst the shiny trinkets and valuable artefacts from times gone by, there were bones and blood and rotting remains of meat and organs and skin. The whole room reeked of rancid death and maggot-ridden meat. Blood splatter stained the shiny surfaces of the scattered treasure, dark and dry. Mounds of hair and skin lay heaped wherever I turned my eyes in fear and despair. Cracked bones, the marrow sucked from the middle, 
lay discarded in piles of garish white. The beast not only robbed his victims of their shiny objects, he captured and slaughtered them and ate them raw. This club is a place of taste and refinement, so I shall not say more of that abattoir of evil, except to say that it made me more afraid than I have ever been or ever wished to be. Not for my life, for I knew in a single glance that I was likely doomed to be dinner, breakfast, lunch and tea time snack, but for my soul. For you see, suicide is a mortal sin, but there was no way I was going to allow that creature to gnaw on me alive. Yet here I sit, in civilised company, a fine drink in my hand and a comfy chair at my backside to tell the tale. This is the part where pluck and luck and physical skill and gallant bravery usually combine to save the day. I can only wish it were so. Instead, let me return to the pit where I was soon to be held. It was a foul place, too, as you would imagine. Crusted with blood, with a floor of fine crushed bones and teeth, with walls too steep to climb. The thing is, it was not empty. At the bottom lay my lady's husband. Emaciated and scarcely breathing, I was amazed to find him still alive. More amazed still, when I approached him and discovered one of his arms had been torn or, worse yet, chewed off. His toes were also gone, and large chunks of meat had been ripped from his thighs and buttocks. I would have scarce recognised him from my lady's description, in such a state he was, but the logic of who he must be was undeniable. My conclusion was confirmed by the picture on the inside of his open pocket watch of the gaily smiling visage of my dear sweet friend. He had set the opened watch before his face, before he lost consciousness, no doubt so as to have a last look at her before the end. When I saw that, I cried out, not from the horror of that dreadful place, or the fear of what was to become of me, or even the tragedy of what had befallen my dying companion, but from shame. Shame that I had flirted with my lady friend in her husband's absence. Shame that I had lusted after. Shame that I had engaged in witty banter for my own amusement and appetite while her husband, albeit unbeknownst to us at the time, was being eaten alive by a beast beyond understanding. My lady's husband died about three days later, without ever regaining consciousness. It seemed like an eternity, but I measured the time in the dim, shadowed light by his watch, never moving it from his hand until he had passed, lest he wake and not find his beloved wife's visage there. The light dimmed further as time progressed and the fire in the cavern above waned, whether because the monster slept or had gone hunting, I did not know. But by the fourth day, I realised that I had heard nothing, but there was yet some light despite the fact the fire must no longer be burning. And that is when I realised there must be access to the outside near, and, accordingly, there was a glimmer of hope as well as of light. I seized upon that hope with all my being, feverishly making wild crazed plans for how I would battle off the beast when it returned for me, for there was no way to climb the walls that held me in the pit, but as time passed and passed yet again, I came to a realisation that the monster had fed well, and like many creatures of the wild, did not need to feed often. I had no food or water, 
The beast had taken my sugared butter. No doubt the smell of my provisions had led him to me. My hard candy was in my pack somewhere unknown, as was my virgin colt. My strength was dwindling. By the time the creature came back, I would be too weak to fight. I could not let that happen. It would be easy to say I was delirious, mad with hunger and despair, but that would be a lie. Gentlemen, though they may do many things, do not lie to one another. And so I tell you true, I ate the only thing I had available to eat. I ate the object of my quest, my fair lady's husband. Not tentatively, mind you, not in little bits to maintain mere life. I ate all I could and waited a bit and then ate some more. I ate while the meat was still good. I ate while there was still hope to gain strength and battle the beast. I did what I believed must be done. And when the monster came to me, I feigned death. I lay limp until he hooked a rope around my ankle and pulled me up. Then, when he held me high, dangling me before his hideous face to savour his coming meal, I pulled out the two forearm bones that I had gnawed from my companion's body and sharpened by rubbing them against the smooth rock walls of the pit, and I plunged them into his black eyes and up into his brain. He fell. I lived. That is my tale. To my right, Throckmorton spluttered as he half rose from his chair. But what of your lady, man? What did you tell her? How did she react? I stared at the old adventurer. Did he not understand anything at all about love? I told her nothing. I headed west. I never saw or communicated with her again. The whippersnapper spoke up. But why? You accomplished her quest. You found out what happened to her husband. Wouldn't she want to know? Know what? That her husband died a gruesome, pain-racked death for naught? That her would-be lover ate her husband's flesh with vigour to save his own miserable life? That I crave her in ways she can never know or understand? The shame is on me. I wish her no further harm. She is better off thinking us both dead. I would be better off if her belief was true. I looked into my snifter, then downed the rest of the drink without pleasure. The crowd began to break up into smaller groups to discuss other, happier adventures. I excused myself and made my way over to the bar where Rogers tended things patiently. He handed me two fingers of single malt and a heavy crystal tumbler without waiting to see what I ordered. Pardon my saying, Sir Ashton Moore, but you left something out. I gave him a hard look. I did? The beast, intoned the Majordomo. What was the beast? The beast is dead. It is of no further consequence. I listen to a great many stories, my lord. I have heard tales, sometimes, of course, second and third hand, about creatures which revel in greed and seek out human flesh to eat. The native tribes in the Americas have several similar names for such creatures. Weendigo, Windigo, and Whittico among them. I shrugged my shoulders. The name is of no concern. The creature is dead. Roger's nose twitched. It's just that 
I noticed you didn't have dinner tonight, like most of the gents. Drinks, yes, but nothing to eat. I laughed aloud. Rogers, a lot of gentlemen here drink with prodigious enthusiasm. This is hardly your place to warn me off, especially after you served me a drink moments ago without me even asking for one. Rogers looked at me without smiling. It's not the drinking, sir, that bothers me. It's the not eating in polite company. I knew where he was going, but I had to keep up the pretense. Whatever do you mean? See, sir, the Weendigo, they do what they do because they're cursed by their past. They used to be human, but they're doomed to such fates by having succumbed to cannibalism in desperate times. The guilt, deserved or not, it causes them to change, to crave even more flesh, even more of what they can never have. And, should they succumb to these powerful urges, the human meat consumed infects them, causing them to change physically, even to putrefy alive. Most often the doomed souls are caught because they live hidden near a small population and are unable or unwilling to control their appetite. They just can't help themselves and take and take until they get noticed. Rogers picked up a clean glass and poured himself two fingers of the same single malt. Your creature, he preyed on travellers, so he was around for a considerable time. Perhaps, I replied. Most days I am too melancholy to think on it and most evenings I am too ashamed to be in polite company. It's a sad tale, sir, that's the truth. He downed his drink in a quick pull. Can I assume, then, sir, that you'll be eating elsewhere tomorrow, also? Tomorrow night, and every night I'm in town, I'm afraid, Rogers. The Majordomo wrinkled his nose, as if catching a whiff of something unpleasant. I'm not so sure, sir. You're the one who should be afraid. Having accomplished what I came to do for the evening, I tipped Rogers generously and walked away towards the door of the Wanderer's Club, motioning to the doorman to hail a transom cab. As I waited, I pulled my pocket watch out, flipping it open to check the time. Vivian's face gazed up at me, beautiful and serene as always. God, how I crave that woman. It's a good thing there is half a continent and an ocean between us. Rogers was a good man. He would talk to the right club members discreetly and arrange for what must be done. After all, suicide is still a mortal sin. That story certainly piqued my appetite. Shall we peek into the dining room and see what my staff has put together? Yes. Oh my, this table is most colorful. The 1960s were something of a golden age for gelatin molds, the likes of which cannot be found outside of northern Wisconsin in this century. To begin with, a blood-red cherry and catsup gelatin ring filled with olives, seemingly, suspended in mayonnaise. And here we have a molded mountain of mayonnaise jello in a most distressing organic shade of white. Let's 
cut into it. Oh my. It's as if Picasso worked in bathroom tile. I had to go to every store in town to find all the necessary packets of jello, you know. Moving on. Now, what is this monstrosity? I'm going to have to refer to the card to see exactly what we're dealing with here. Bananas with ham and hollandaise, and a liver pate in the shape of a pineapple. Why? Here we have candles made of cranberry sauce, thickened with yet more mayonnaise, and yes, more gelatin. Or wait, is this aspic? No, it's gelatin. Oh, I see. There are little birthday candles inserted in the tops to provide the flame. How very festive. And here, for the fish dish, we have a very pink tuna mold. It's smiling at us. And for the main dish, we have the roasted crown of frankfurters. How absolutely appalling. For those listening at home, imagine, if you will, if the cosmic gods of starry wisdom were having a cocktail party over Wyoming and using the Devil's Tower as a bowl for their unholy chip dip. Except done in hot dogs instead. I'm afraid I must admit that this spread is even more frightening than the story was. I will understand if you choose not to stay to dine, but do come visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. All story copyrights remain with the authors. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. If you like the show, give us thanks by sharing it with your friends and leaving stars and reviews online. This episode was produced in November of 2019. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Ah, this is a rather simple jello mold. It looks like it's just lime jello. Although, is there something inside? What is that? Let me take a bite here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm feeling adventurous. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting textures. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's spam, ladies and gentlemen. That's spam inside of lime jello. That's all the proof I needed that there is no God. Mm.